Well, good morning. Glad to see everyone here this morning. All right. Are y'all getting the feedback out there, or is it just me? Just me? Okay, that's all right then. But glad to see everybody out here this morning. Uh, Welcome to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Zechariah this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, Zechariah is a tiny, tiny book. So if I were you, like, I'm pretty familiar with the Bible, but I still use my table of contents to find what page it's on and just turn there because it's, it's little, man, and it's there between the Old and New Testaments. So you'll, you'll find it. Uh, just look in the table of contents. Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. What we're going to see is that God gives to Zechariah through the course of one night and one great single vision It's made up of a series of different pictures uh, that, when taken together, they're going to enable us to see what God is doing behind the curtain of history. We're going to take a peek behind uh, the events of history and see what exactly is God doing. Thankfully, Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he did was he wrote down all these events for us, and we have the text in front of us today. We're going to work through this uh, text this morning uh, by looking at it in three ways, in three parts. We're going to look at the charges, the prosecution or the accuser, and the defense. I've only got one application for you this morning, uh, but it's an important one. It's a, a vital one, and that is to put on Christ, to put on Christ. But before we do all that, uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that at the right time you died for the ungodly, for us. We thank you that at the right time you rose from the dead to proclaim your victory over sin, over guilt, and the destruction of death. We thank you that you will return, that you will set all things together in perfect harmony. We thank you that by gathering together as your people, you give us a foretaste of heaven. We thank you that you have made community, the church, the context in which we will grow into maturity. We thank you that our relationships with one another allow us to be more fully ourselves and that they spur us on to be more like you. God, this morning, we ask that you forgive us anew, that you cause the coolness of your Holy Spirit to fall on us freshly, that you would cause us to listen well, cause me to preach well, cause us all to submit well to your word, Lord, you are the fountain of life. And there is nowhere else that we can go to have water that we might live. Quench our thirst this morning. Help us to delight in this text, to delight in the gospel, to delight in the good news. Help us to keep you as the apple of our eye, as our treasure. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you woke up this morning and you decided to come to an Easter Sunday service, I I highly doubt that you thought you would find yourself in the book of Zechariah and in a courtroom. I highly doubt that you thought you would find yourself on trial this morning. But that is exactly the context of our text, of this passage in Zechariah. We find ourselves in a courtroom. So let let me set up the scene for you just a little bit. On one hand, we have Satan, or the Satan, literally in the text, as prosecutor. And on the other hand, 
we have the high priest. That's Joshua or the people's representative. When we see Joshua, he's standing in on our behalf. He's supposed to be us. He's like our double in a Hollywood movie or like our stunt devil, right? He represents us. Joshua is us. And he also represents Israel. And then lastly, we have one more character, a little bit more mysterious, this angel of the Lord. And as we've worked through judges in previous weeks, we've come across him a number of times. And we've determined that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate son of God. Uh, it, real easily, it's just Jesus before he came to earth in the form of a baby, right? This is Jesus in the Old Testament. That's who the angel of the Lord is. And so with the scene set, we start reading in verse 1. And then he showed me. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So as we're in this courtroom this morning and our representative Joshua is standing there before the angel of the Lord, before God, and the prosecution stands on the other side of the courtroom, we must ask ourselves, what are the charges? What are the charges? Well, Joshua, Israel, you, me, we're charged with sin. We're charged with unrighteousness. Now, sin is kind of a churchy word, and so uh, it's actually a really simple concept. It comes from an old archery term that uh, when people, they used to shoot arrows at targets a little bit more than we do. Uh, I guess some of us still do that. But when you would miss the bullseye, it was called sin. It just means to, to miss the mark. And so when I, if I would loose an arrow at a, at, a, at a target back here and miss, there would actually be a guy there with a wooden sign with the word sin on it, and he would just hold it up. So I sinned. I missed the mark. And so what it means in the context of Scripture and in the context of Christianity is it's simply to miss the mark of God's manifold, holy perfection. What it means is, is that we are not perfect. When we sin, we are less than perfect. We miss God's holiness. We miss God's perfection. And so you can just think of it as missing the bullseye, falling short of the glory of God. Now, being guilty of sin puts us in what the Bible will call a state of unrighteousness. But I think to understand what unrighteousness is, we must first ask, well, what is righteousness? I think simply it's, it's a relationship. It means to be right or to be acceptable with someone. And so unrighteousness is to be unacceptable or not right with somebody, at odds with them. It means the relationship is not well, it's not healthy. And so the filthy garments that we see here in verse 3 represent this truth. That we, that Joshua, that you and I, that Israel, is not right with God. We're not in right relationship with God. Things are broken. Joshua, our representative, is wearing filthy clothes. And thus, so too are we as we stand before the judge. Now, the filth is a figurative representation of sin, of this missing the mark, of just being ungodly. So that the dirty clothes represent defilement with sin and guilt. It is unrighteousness. It is a ruined relationship. Here is the truth. That even though the prosecution that stands there has not yet uttered a word, we are guilty. We're guilty and we know it. 
Friends, I don't think any of us would argue that uh, we're perfect or that we have met the standard of God. But still, we continually in our lives are looking for a way to prove to ourselves that indeed we are worthy, we are acceptable. We're looking for a way to be satisfied, to be content. We look for it in all the wrong places, don't we? Sometimes in power and money and, and sex. I mean, pick your poison. But no matter how good we get at pursuing those idols, at pursuing these other ways of trying to find satisfaction, trying to find acceptance, we fall woefully short. We're never quite satisfied. We never quite get it. And we know that deep down inside, something is wrong with us. Something is very wrong. Indeed, I think any one of us can tell that not only are we broken, but the world we live in is broken. Something is not right. Leads us to ask questions like, why is there suffering? Why is there death? I think the Bible answers this story by by telling a story of its own, uh, one that you're probably quite familiar with uh, in the story of Adam and Eve, right? Adam is the first man. He's our representative, a little bit like Joshua is here in the courtroom. And he's placed in a garden. And he's told to work and to keep the garden. He's told to worship and obey God. Those are, those are his parameters. But Adam, much like us, he, he decides that he's smarter than God. And so he decides, listen, this whole not eating the fruit thing, it's not that big of a deal. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to go ahead and do that. And he sins. He acts imperfectly. He acts in an ungodly way. He disobeys. And in this one action, Adam and Eve usher sin and evil into the world. It fractures everything. It broke everything. It brought destruction and death to us. It separated Adam and Eve from God. They were cast out of the garden. Sin still separates us from God. Adam's rebellion is our rebellion. We're still in rebellion today because we are just like Adam. We continue to think that we're smarter than God. We continue to listen to our voices instead of God's voice. We continue to want to be God rather than to be like God. I mean, maybe you don't believe me, but, but let, me, let me flesh it out a little bit. Have you ever sinned? I mean, have you ever told a lie? Maybe you broke the speed limit on the way here. Maybe you just got angry at a family member, not rightly, on the way over as you were getting ready this morning. I know there was a little bit of tension in my house as that baby was screaming, you know? Not pointing the fingers anywhere. It's probably me. Have you ever wanted somebody else's stuff? The Bible calls that one coveting. Have you ever just loved anything in this world more than God? I mean, I, I certainly have been guilty of these things. I and mean, these are all sins of what the Bible would call sins of commission, things that we do actively to rebel against the Lord. Maybe, maybe you're really, really good. And eh, you know what? I don't have any of those sins of commission. I guarantee you're going to have some of the second type. They're called sins of omission, which just means uh, things we omit or things that we don't do. The Bible says anybody that knows the right he should do and doesn't do it, sins. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe you're really good at changing tires and you got a spare tire and all the equipment to, to change a tire in your car and you're just driving home. You've got all the time in the world and uh, you see somebody broken down on the side of the road and they, they need some help pretty clearly. And you pass them by. Sin! Because you've failed to love your neighbor as yourself. We've broken the law, God's law. We ceased to be perfect. So we're guilty. And along with Joshua, we stand there in filthy garments, condemned. 
before the trial even starts, we know that we don't have a chance. I love the imagery of the courtroom here. It's quite amazing. I hope that it grips you as it has gripped me. Israel's high priest, you see, was only to go into the presence of God about, usually there's like once a year they had the Day of Atonement when he would go in. But he's only supposed to go in the, in the presence of God on a very rare occasion. And when he does go, he's supposed to wear like his very, very best clothing. There's specific clothes. They're only wore like one day a year. They're holy garments. So, you know, he's shining his shoes up. He's throwing his blazer on, putting a tie on maybe to go before the Lord. Now, Zechariah knows all these rules and regulations. He knows that the priest is only supposed to go into the presence of God when he is looking very, very good, when he is looking his best, when he has been purified and is wearing the holy garments. But Zechariah, who's been quiet to this point, he's the author, remember, he's watching this scene unfold. And as he expects to see the priest just super clean, instead he's horrified because he sees Joshua is in filthy clothing. Literally, the the text here says that his garments are soiled by excrement. I mean, he is dirty. He's covered in sewage. This would automatically defile him. It automatically makes him unfit for the presence of the Lord. It represents his sin and his separation from God. Our sin and separation from God. I mean, think about it with me. Uh, What do you expect when, you know... Young couple gets engaged and the bride is getting ready for her wedding. What do you expect from her? You know, she, you know, she spends all those months, maybe her whole life. I don't know. In some cases, uh, they're planning that wedding. She's preparing for the ceremony. I mean, that day uh, when she wakes up, she's getting the makeup on. She's picking out just the right shoes, just the right accessories, the right necklace. She's getting her nails did and her hair done up. She wants to look good. The best that she's ever looked in her whole life. Today is her wedding day, right? I mean, she definitely picks the perfect dress. My wife picked out three before it was all said and done, but I won't share that story right now. But the bride takes all these garments, she puts them on, and she's ready to go. Now imagine with me, you're, you're at the wedding, and uh, as the music plays, as the bride march plays, or I guess today kids come down to like the Black Eyed Peas or, or some other music. Whatever music it is that, that plays, uh, it, it starts to play and the, music, the doors swing open and you look back. You're ready to see the bride dressed in white, looking beautiful. And she looks more like that guy from Dirty Jobs after he's worked all day in the septic, right? Filthy. You would be shocked, right? She wouldn't be dressed for the occasion. In fact, she would be totally underdressed. This is how Zechariah feels. He cannot believe that the high priest of Israel is in the presence of God on this most important day, at this most important time, covered in filth. Here's the terrifying truth for Zechariah and for us. If the high priest is covered in filth, so too are we. Guilty and without defense. And the Satan or the accuser, the prosecution knows it. I think it's interesting to point out at at this juncture that the devil or Satan is not primarily a tempter. I think we think of him that way a lot, right? We think, oh, Satan is tempting me to do something. But the Bible really paints him primarily as one that accuses. And literally Satan means a prosecutor, like a prosecuting attorney. It's the main thing that he does is he brings charges against us. 
Now, some of you uh, might go, I don't really believe in the devil, but I'll, I'll tell you, you should. I mean, let me ask you, uh, why is it that, that old sins and old wrongs done and old failures constantly come before your mind? Why is there always that feeling of regret that, you know, I haven't lived right? There are a lot of, you know, self-help books and whatnot out there to try and help you overcome this. But I think it remains that your guilt, your sins sit in the secret places of your heart. And you know that something is not right. Our guilt has a vividness to it. It's not just a memory. It seems alive. And because someone is bringing it up over and over again, the accuser, the prosecutor, Friends, there is a justice with which we all must deal. There is a standard that will measure us and we will stand before it underdressed. There's a justice before whom we will all stand accused. I think sometimes our situations can help uh, make those accusations that we sit under a little more clear. Usually it's during hard times, right? When somebody loses a job or loses a loved one. Don't you immediately almost think, Man, God is punishing me. I deserve this. Or maybe when you try to share Jesus with someone, immediately you think, if they only knew what I was really like, I have no right to take his name on my lips. Or maybe when you finally sit down to to pray, you hear, why should he hear you anyway? Or when you fail at anything, and you call yourself a Christian? when your feelings are cold and unruly, when you're most trying to press into the presence of God, don't you hear? You're filthy. He won't hear you. Satan and those metaphysical forces of darkness come up against us in many, many ways. But the primary way is through accusation by reminding us of our guilt so that that sinister voice is continually ringing in our ears. So how can we hope to have hope if we're accused and condemned? How can we have hope if the charges are true? If our clothing is indeed filthy? Enter the defense. Our defense attorney, our advocate, the angel of the Lord, who in the Old Testament, as we said, is a mysterious figure that speaks for and as God, and in the New Testament is revealed to be Jesus himself, as Satan gets ready to bring forth his airtight case against us, he's going to win, right? The prosecution has us. Imagine with me in the courtroom as he gets ready to, to point out all of our guilt and shame, to kind of call us on the carpet, a voice thundering across the room. Indeed, it's the voice of Jesus, the angel of the Lord, speaking in verse 2 as the Lord, saying to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's just clothes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
Isn't this amazing? As the prosecution gets ready to point out our guilt, the angel of the Lord interrupts him and says, No, no one brings a charge against God's people, against God's elect. This is amazing. Even though we are guilty, Jesus calls us his. He says of Israel and of us that we're like a stick taken out of a fire. Have you ever taken a stick out of a fire? No, it burns for a little bit and then the fire goes out and it's, it's charred and, and kind of blackened. The stick is still dirty, but the fire is gone. See, the guilt of sin, the guilt of condemnation is gone. But the presence of sin is still there. The effects of sin are still there. Before you follow Jesus, the condemnation remains. After you accept Christ, it is removed. Jesus is saying, yes, there is still sin in your heart. You will still sin, but it will no longer condemn you. For there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans tells us. Next, he removes the filthy garments and replaces them with pure and holy clothing. I mean, I love the scene here. Jesus is uh, removing the garments from Zechariah. He says, take the, those nasty things off him. We're going to put pure garments on him. And Zechariah, who's remained quiet in the narrative to this point, can't control himself. He cries out, put a clean turban on his head. Make him clean. He can't wait for this purification to take place. He wants the priest to be able to stand before God rightly. He wants reconciliation in the relationship for Joshua and for himself. The question is, how? I mean, how can a judge, if he's righteous, just ignore wrongdoing? I mean, a righteous judge is just. And his judgment reflects justice, right? How can this wrongdoing, if we've done wrong, how can it just simply go unpunished? How can Jesus remove sin? I mean, think of it this way. If, if I come over to your house and uh, clumsy as I am, I break a lamp. Something's going to have to happen, right? I'm going to have to pay to get you a new lamp. You're going to have to pay to get you a new lamp. Or you're just going to have to go without having light in that particular room. Either one of the three ways, someone has to absorb that cost. Someone has to pay the price. So too, a just judge can't just dismiss sin. Someone has to pay the price. So how does Jesus remove sin? By becoming sin for us. It's a removal that required Jesus to take on flesh, become a man and act as the second Adam, as our representative, as the ultimate high priest. It required that he become the God-man. And as Adam was tempted in the garden, so too would Jesus be tempted in the garden on the side of the Mount of Olives. He was tempted to forsake his mission, to allow this cup to pass from him. But instead, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. It was not an easy submission. In fact, we read that it caused him to fall to the ground in anguish. It caused him to sweat blood just at the thought of putting on our filthy clothing. At becoming sin, at becoming our substitute. Mark writes of it, and going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed. If it's possible that the hour might pass from him, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, 
but what you will. Matthew writes of it. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Luke, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Despite the terror that he felt at the prospect of putting on these filthy clothes, despite the the sin bearing down on him, he submitted himself to the death that we deserve. And when men came looking for him with torches and with lanterns and with weapons, Jesus simply asked, whom do you seek? And they answered, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And when he said this, they drew back and fell to the ground. He that spoke with such power and such authority. He that set the universe into motion. He that places pure robes across our shoulders was then taken and crowned with thorns that tore his flesh. And he was arrayed in a purple robe and mocked. The king of all things was mocked as a criminal, unjustly condemned by unjust men, men like you and I. Condemned on our behalf, in our place. Jesus was going to the cross for our sin. He would have nails driven into his hands and into his feet because of us. Martin Luther used to say that we all walk around with nails from the cross in our pockets. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. The light of the world experienced the ultimate darkness that we might experience light. The Father poured out His wrath. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land, we read in Luke, until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The God-man was dead, buried in a garden. This is what it took to achieve the cleansing of sin. This is what it took for him in that courtroom to be able to say, remove the filthy garments from him. The God-man was dead. Darkness consumed the land on that Friday. And on Saturday, the stone stood still in its place. But on Sunday, the stone was rolled away. Sunday revealed that death couldn't handle the God-man. That the grave couldn't hold the God-man. The creator of all things didn't just stay dead. He didn't just stay in the grave. But he proved himself to be who he said he was. I am he. He proved himself to be God. Proving himself to be God himself, he rose from the grave and defeated death itself. This is how Zechariah 3, that courtroom setting, becomes true for you and I. This is how he is able to say, take off the filthy garments, put pure robes on him, put pure garments on him. 
That's how he's able to assure us in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly spoke to Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. And I will give you the right to access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are now men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. That's Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove iniquity from this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Christian, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That not only are our sins forgiven, paid for by the substitutionary death of Jesus, not only are our filthy rags removed, but Jesus says, put robes on him. Put pure robes on him. Put clean robes on him. You see, justification that is making us right with God goes beyond mere forgiveness of sins. When we say you're saved the moment you believe in Jesus, it don't simply mean that your sins are pardoned. We mean that not only are your sins forgiven, but that his righteousness, his perfection is given to you. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your life, he sees Jesus' life. He doesn't see your filthy rags, he sees Jesus' righteous robes. Because of that, we can enjoy peace and tranquility. We can enjoy peace with God that's symbolized by the vine and the fig tree. Life together with God. Right now we get to experience this joy in part. It's just a foretaste of the future experience. Of its fullness that will come. When we finally rejoice in the marriage supper at the Lamb. Sing along with the heavenly host. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bridegroom Jesus wore our filthy garments so that we, the church, his bride, might wear white as we are wedded to him in eternity. That we might experience shalom, peace, harmony, true human flourishing, that we might do what we were created to do, glorify God by enjoying him forever. Despite this sweetest of truths, I fear that we often find ourselves still under the assault of the prosecution. I think when this happens, the best medicine, the best encouragement to our souls is to remember this courtroom in Zechariah. To remember that even now, Jesus is before the Father, saying you must put clean robes on him. This is how we deal with the prosecution. Because a defense attorney doesn't simply plead for mercy. He makes a case. And this is what Jesus does. He says to the Father, the wages of sin is death, and the law is absolutely right. The wages of sin is death. But look at my blood. Here is my blood. I've made the payment. And it would be unjust for you to ask for a second. Therefore, I do not demand mercy for my people. I demand justice. And that is an indelible case. He says the defense rests on my righteousness. On my perfection. 
I've paid the cost. So when you're being crushed beneath the weight of sin, remember this gospel. Remember Jesus, that he was crushed for your sins so that you might have life, that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That he proved himself acceptable to be who he said he was by rising from the dead on the third day. Remember that he's put clean robes on you if you have believed and are following him. Let me share a a quick truth with you this morning. People are going to die this year. Now you might think, hey, I I knew that. That's that's nothing new. let Let me say it again. People are going to die this year and nobody ever thinks it's going to be them. Let me be straight with you. This year could be your year. What are you going to do when you find yourself in the divine courtroom? What will you be wearing? Garments of filth or garments of grace? Will your sin condemn you? Or will Jesus demand the justice due to those that have trusted in him? My exhortation this morning is to put on Christ. Friends, it is Easter Sunday. And it's time to think about what you are wearing. And so that's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What are you wearing today? Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we consider these things, I pray that you send your Holy Spirit to fall freshly on us. Pray that you would edify those that are following you this morning and summon those that have not yet believed to bend the knee, to repent for the first time. God, as we prepare to come to the table and eat of the elements that represent your body that was broken for us and your blood that was spilled for us on Calvary's cross, we pray that you would give us clean hands that you would give us pure hearts, sober minds, that you would stir our affections. God, we ask that this wouldn't be a time of solemn sadness, but of great joy, for you have risen. A celebration that anticipates the greatest of all celebrations, that marriage supper that will happen upon your return. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. And thank you for wearing our rags that we might wear your righteous robes and inherit your riches. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.